Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raff Riff. <laughs> you're like you're like Riff Raff. I was I've been thinking about yeah. this for 24 hours. I kind of look like him, don't I? I need a new nickname. For yeah. <laughs> People walk up to me. It's like, are you Raff Riff? <laughs> I'm the famous uh, mumbler. Yeah. I, do, I, do. I mean, yeah. You're like you're like the quiet Riff Raff. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you're Raff Riff. We're the yin and the yang. Like I have a little bit of him, and he has a little bit of me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, All right, so episode 50. what's going on? Yeah, this is a big, big day. This is a, a big day in the history of podcasting for Jeremy and Raff Riff. Um, yeah, on the mic. On the mic, 50 episodes, which I don't think we ever thought we'd get to. I thought we would surely hate each other by now or run out of things to say. Yeah. Both, both might be true at times. <laughs> but um, it's easier than I thought. I thought... To, uh, for some reason, I thought it it would be hard to fit in our schedules because of travel, or you run out of things to talk, or like, yeah. Mm. But I I think my brain in general often I think oh that's not possible, and somehow I just it, then you do it and you're like oh that wasn't so hard. Yeah, I mean I was just uh, reading about um, th- this is the last week that on NPR. Have you ever heard the show Car Talk with Click and Clack the Car Guys? No, no. It's like the <coughs> longest running show on NPR. It's been on for 30 years. Is it about and, cars? Uh, yeah, it's about cars. It's a call-in show. And it's got two hosts. And one of them died in 2014, actually. But they continued to run the show. It was that popular in reruns. Um, and the way... It, like, it's, it's crazy. It was their most popular show. And it's just two guys chatting about <laughs> cars. Do they also have making- recordings of the engine and the things like that? No, no. Not they, even. they just they're hilarious and they get along really well cuz they're brothers. They just have uh, a good chemistry, and, yeah. And the, yeah, one of them has a really infectious laugh that I always appreciate. <laughs> uh, but also the funny thing is they just showed up for an interview one day at like a local station and apparently they were just their chemistry and their like humor like they're just good at talking was so good just from this one interview that they're like, hey, why don't you come back and just do a, a show, a regular show? And then that show went on to be the most popular show ever on radio, on NPR radio, and then lasted for 30 years. Which that's awesome, think. yeah. Yeah, which is not, that's not an opportunity that'll ever be available to us. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, I thought you, you it was... You don't know, you don't know. 50 episodes, though, is something we can pat ourselves yeah. on the back for. But it, it, yeah. it, it is interesting. I have this weird... Uh, I'm quite pessimistic, but at the same time, like, well, why not try it? There's nothing better to do anyway, and then it works out. Yeah, that's a interesting way to live <laughs> one's life. Well, it, I definitely <laughs> don't have high expectations. So, yeah. I might do that with like some milk in the fridge that's been there a little too long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta die of something. Why not just, see? Yeah, yeah, just try it anyway? See what uh, happens. Uh. But I've always actually had a policy of. Um, just say yes, which is not a good policy. I don't recommend anyone no, no. have this policy. In fact, I was just recommending to someone this week, you know, explicitly say, make sure you say no uh, to the first thing someone offers you in a job context or something like that, because then you then I, I, you have the, the negotiating. Best, the best, yeah, the best negotiation starts with uh, I don't have time for that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, just think of all the situations in which <laughs> you've asked someone. Someone said someone. once, as an artist, the more you say no, the more your stock goes up. If there is such a thing as stock, yeah, yeah. in in the yeah, era. but your value, the people are like, oh, he's busy. It must be mm. he or she's busy. It must be something uh, important going on. 
there is a lot of real like mythology built around artist careers. I've talked about this before, but like, um, you're you know, if you have a side job, which ninety nine percent of artists do, you're supposed to keep it a secret or lie about it, or your gallery definitely doesn't want you you know anyone to know about it. Um, and then that creates a certain amount of anxiety about who you are, right? Like whether you know, so you have the secret life. I have a secret life. Yes, I work in a coffee shop. Oh my god! Or I work in sometimes you know, like I was working in advertising agencies and stuff like that. And I was yeah, like, that's the biggest the shame. Secret. Yeah, yeah. And then after you leave, it's like like if you're Barbara Kruger or something like that, or like oh well, you know, yeah, it's all because ad- <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. they spent a life in secret in advertising agencies. It was research, really, for this spectacular yeah, same work. With, <laughs> like Richard Prince was working at a magazine, archiving photos, and then he came up with the idea of rephotographing them. And they're yeah. like, oh, this artist is so visionary that even on the day job, <laughs> they could come up with something genius. Right. But if they're still doing that day job, they'd be like, hey, Richard Prince, what's up with that? I'm not making enough money on your Instagram, uh, <laughs> <laughs> your Instagram ripoff. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, that, that brings us to this week's topic. Yeah, this week's topic. We're getting there quick because 50 episodes, we know how to get to a topic. Anxiety. Believe us, we know how to segue. <laughs> yeah. Because we anxiety, had huge anxiety yeah. for this episode because um, it happens well, that you, we have a decimal number system and... For that reason, the number fifty has a, it's it's ten times one hand, so it must be important. You kind of created the anxiety, though. You said it had to be important. Use the word "had." It has to be good. Jeremy. I say so much. You should not take me seriously. It's a, mm. I don't know. I the, the I do usually don't think when I talk. So. It's usually either a text message at midnight or text message at six a.m. from you too. So yeah. <laughs> like, they'll be like the first thing I wake <laughs> up to. Jeremy, this Let's episode go. has Let's to go. be the best. <laughs> I'll be like, I just woke up. I need, I need some time. Well, I need to reach you before your day job. Yeah. That's true. You're very good at that. You're good. You're an effective communicator. You reach me when no what one part else. part of it is, is from not sleeping so much. So. You? Yeah. I don't think I sleep that much. You, you sleep, but you sleep effectively. I feel like you. it's regimented, right? Yeah, I take naps, I guess. Yeah. You're not a teenager anymore, though. You don't need as much sleep, right? Mm. Teenagers need, what? what is it, nine hours of sleep a night? I was just reading. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But um, so. here it is, anxiety. We, we have a shared note with a whole list of topics. And um, I was thinking a lot about social anxiety, how you speak to different people, and mm-hmm. they have a hard time at art openings and if they're not drunk. Yeah. And there was an article in The Atlantic talking about how Teenagers are so deep in their phone that going to a party and hanging out with people in the same room just seems scary and inefficient and lame. And it, why not be in your room with popcorn and uh, blankets and uh, all that stuff? So I just read this article this morning, literally before I got on the podcast, because I was hanging out yesterday. Was with, it on your um, flipboard, or how did you encounter the article? No, a friend sent it to me by email. Okay, the old, the old, olden times. <laughs> yeah, and it was because I was hanging out with this friend and a couple other people yesterday, and one of the other people. I, w- I want to talk about the etiquette of sharing things over email because that's like a. It really means like Jeremy, you're gonna love this. Because if someone shares something on Facebook yeah. or, or adds you at Twitter, kind of means like maybe if you have time. But this really means like oh, this is just for you. This is tailored to you. This. Yeah. Yeah. 
Except that there were some CC people because it, okay. it pertained to a group conversation we had about, you know, which is a common conversation it, people have. But it used to be, is, that it, I'm going veering off a little bit, but it used to be that people yeah, yeah, would send uh, PowerPoint presentations along with, with funny gags. And, and there would be like 40 images and it'd be a seven megabyte attachment with probably a virus. That's how people would share jokes. <laughs> I literally never received that, but I, I know what you're talking about. It's, it it's like mostly from like, older people that you would get. Yeah. That. Yeah. Like, I, I, please like open this attachment. Parents. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, that still happens, that kind of phishing thing. Yeah. But the reason I got this, uh, this particular email was because I was hanging out with some people yesterday and one of them happened. There was some discussion about millennials because one of them was like 20 years younger than the rest of us. This like 19 year old kid or he wasn't. You know, I shouldn't call him a kid because he had a job <laughs> at a company and he's with these other peers of his. And we were talking about whether or not he was a millennial or Generation Z. And um, and then there's this Atlantic article that came out. So I came in my inbox uh, this morning and it talks about I generation uh, or the I generation. And uh, it's a generation that grew up. It's a, we always talk about post-internet on, on, on the on the podcast so people who grew up with the internet this is a generation of people who grew up with the internet on smartphones uh, they can't remember ever not having a yeah. smartphone that was connected yeah it's a snapchat generation yeah yeah exactly and i always thought because of snapchat's uh interface and like the speed of software that snapchat would kind of like not be relevant forever but they seem to be doing a good job of reaching kids again and i remember a few years ago i read an article that said like kids were like pushing back against social media they were like not using facebook etc because they didn't want their lives recorded forever um and that was creating a lot of anxiety and so they were spending more time face to face this article like the research that it had gathered i, I have to look at the methodologies but like anecdotally anyway it was like that's actually not happening. The opposite is happening. Kids are spending way more time at home <laughs> in their beds with their phones. In their cocoon. Not talking. Yeah. yeah, in their cocoon, like undermining each other socially on Instagram or yeah. Snapchat or whatever. Well, it's, it's immediately, from a writer's perspective, someone who's older, they're like, oh no, what's happening? Partying is good. Being at home is bad. So, yeah. But maybe it's just an evolution and maybe people are meant to be in a cocoon in the long run. Well, I just did like two episodes ago. I talked about like, uh, like the glory and majesty of the iPhone 10. <laughs> so it's not lost. Yeah, on right. Me, and and you were so amped up on the that the front-facing camera got more attention than the. Yeah, and it'll finally allow like a generation of people to express themselves the way I've always imagined they could. Um, and what's crazy though is it turns out that the like and the, I've experienced this because Kristen, uh, my partner, is a teacher that the suicide rate among uh, these kids is like 50% high. Like it's like a, a huge jump. Yeah. Um, that, and it happens like right around, it's like like the iPhone, there's like a line in, there's like a date line, it's like iPhone <laughs> it's so and then suicide rate jumps. I'm it's like, so funny because the, the, whenever you see keynotes and people talking about Silicon Valley, it's like, well, this is this amazing place for innovation and we're making the world a better place and we're connecting people and people have this new freedom to go surf and then talk on their watch and they can receive calls out in the ocean and isn't that better? And it's yeah. like, well, and but like, it also raises suicide rates. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, let's just take a commercial but, break here. It, yeah. uh, by the way, ch child <laughs> suicide rates are way up. It's crazy. Ooh, it's we got a bug really in horrifying. the software. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, 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 a long time ago, I, I never fleshed out the, I think I, in a weird essay, I wrote a, um, I wrote, I had a sci-fi scenario that if they figure out time travel and the, and the time is uh, malleable and you have enough of it, you can stretch time and so you, you don't have any time limit on things you have to do or tasks that you have to do. You could mm. have one. Just if you, if you extrapolate automation and time travel and just think like, okay, there's an infinite supply of whatever you need because there's no restraint on time. Mm-hmm. What do you do against boredom then? And I, I, I'm just really mumbling now, but part of this maybe suicide going up is like just not knowing what to do with your time because there's too much time. Uh, I mean, as a kid, I was often bored, but I often found a way not to be bored. Here's what I'll say, like, like, because inevitably we have to, if we're going to talk about kids today, we have to talk about when we were kids, and that's going to be weird. Also, I will say my least favorite thing in the world is, like, people who diss millennials or potentially diss... Well, people always diss the, the next generation. That's because I'm sure, like, now people are dissing young people for not partying, and I'm sure in the 50s people were like... These kids are well, partying, Xers, don't they? Yeah. No, but in the 50s, they would be like, oh, what yeah, are these yeah, kids boomers. doing dancing by a jukebox when they could be working? Mm-hmm. So the, every time there's a change, this is just most people start whining. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and this suicide thing, hey, let, let's just... Hey, it's <laughs> a cool new thing. Hey, come on, guys. It's, 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 it's good for the global warming, for carbon well, offset. The, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing about the... Or the not-so-funny thing about the suicide bit was... Um, well, also, it disproportionately affects, uh, like, women, or I guess because they're children, they're girls, uh, girls versus boys. Um, and apparently that's because uh, girls that age undermine each other's social status as a way of, like, sort of, um, I don't know, playing. Uh, and so, you know, boys are affected by this, but less so than, than girls, which I think is kind of interesting. But the other thing I was going to say is uh, when I was that age, uh, so, you know, these kids are on their phones and they don't leave the house very often, apparently. Like, that's the main thing. Like, literally, they don't leave the house. But I didn't leave the house. And it was uh, because I wanted to be on the computer, one. But actually, I didn't realize in retrospect, like, there was a horrific incident. And I don't know if I should talk about it on the podcast, but I will. Um, it's a bit of a sensitive issue. It's not at all funny. But a uh, my friend, my sister's best friend, was part of like a major case here in Canada. She was like a, an athlete, like a you know regular young kind of teenager, and she went out and she was on the track team, and she was very active. And one day, like a photographer came up to her and said, like, "Hey, would you mind if I took your photo and put it in the paper? Uh, like, you'll, you know, we we're doing a thing on like teenage track stars or you know teenage tra- track stars." She, she asked her mom and her mom was like yeah you should go and she never came home um, and you know like she was murdered basically this is my sister's best friend so when I was like the age they're talking about these kids like seven, eight, nine, ten, and into my teens my parents were like terrified that we would go out in the city um, and our like so our lives drastically changed and around the same time I didn't put this all together they brought a computer home into the house and made that available to me creatively. And I was just like, I was like, wow, I didn't even think about this stuff, like the heaviness of what I just described yeah, to you. Like yeah. I never once thought but about you it. But you still went to school every day. <clears throat> I did go to school every day. I had, yeah. 
yeah, I went to school every day. There are a few incidents at school that kind of stuck with me in my memory that uh, scare me. Like I went to a down, like Toronto's not a rough city, but there was, because of this event, like my childhood was sort of tainted by that. Hmm. Um, but you can imagine like, um, well, anyway, I spent most of my time on a computer and I did have a lot of social anxiety. I'm going to just put it out there that I, in high school, I had a tremendous amount of anxiety and I was at the bottom of the, my friend food chain if I was even allowed into the friend group, right? Like, and I always felt like I was being left out of stuff. And I can't imagine... Did you, did uh, you have zero friends or was there like a, a group of five outcasts that you hung out with? Oh yeah, I, I, group, I hung out with like a group of five outcasts for sure. But they were like cooler than me. Actually, they were pretty cool, right? Like, but I was just the bottom of the totem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I was the one, I was the butt of the jokes. And people called me Bailey, I remember. They're always like, oh, you know, Bailey, you know, you're such an idiot. Bailey, Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I was talking to someone about this this week. Explicitly when I got into college, Just, just for understanding, like how many yeah. how many students were in your school? Like how how large was that social context? I was in like a little French school as part of a bigger school, so like 300 people in my school in a school of 1,500. Yeah, so it was like uh, between 300 and 1,500. But when I got to college, I made an explicit like choice not to let anyone know I was called Bailey and then being called Jeremy. And I was talking to someone else who did this, like renaming yourself as a way of escaping mm -hmm. your past or like this image and anxiety that had been created. Well, it's also when you right. go to college, you're going somewhere where you, you chose your interest and other people chose the same interest. So that already right. alleviates because part of social anxiety for nerds, I, I think how I see nerds is people who have a really niche interest very deep into it and a not so physical interest usually like mm -hmm. not athletic but like an interest in trains or an interest in uh, history or an interest whatever and mm -hmm. the, just by the fact that your interest is so niche makes it hard to connect to other people yeah and we've talked about that before on the podcast I think among like you know, artists working with technology especially early on we just weren't able to find other artists that were doing the same thing and so the internet actually was this connective tissue that brought people together um But in the first place, yeah, like my computer wasn't fully connected. I didn't know anyone else was doing anything creative that I could share with. I was looking at like industry pros and stuff like that for uh, help and admiration. And um, But now, yeah, but now it's a bit of a uh, caterpillar and a butterfly story because now you're, well, you're a super social guy. Sure, but I, I kind of wanted to expand on this, like the way I that happened and what I think will happen and is happening with this new generation of kids, just to like put a little bit of silver lining on it, which is that uh, I met a I met a teacher, his name was Colin Campbell, like, and he put his hand on my shoulder one day and said, like, Hey, I'd really like you to be in my class. I think you're super talented. Like he had had very little exchange with me. I'd taken like a seminar with him. Um, I went on to become his assistant, but he had he had a, a artistic practice where he invented several persona, and he was often in drag, and he kind of lampooned the art world. And I think I've mentioned this a couple times, but he kind of showed me that like you could reinvent yourself with persona, and so that you could invent a new you. And this, like, as a no one t no one tells you this when you're a kid, but you see kids do this. Like my little brother, he was a monkey for like several <laughs> months of his life. Like he and he bit children at school. Or no, this is my older brother actually. Like, and it was a bit of an issue in our family. I'm told I was. <laughs> well, <too>. he's special. <laughs> yeah. But he was dealing with an anxiety, right? And so one of the ways in which people deal with anxiety is they like literally stop being themselves. Es like escapism. They, they can, 
they escape into a persona or object or animal in his case. And I think that's okay, actually. I think it's like there's no wrong way. I mean, I'm not a therapist, actually. We should say, like, notice, don't take any of Jeremy's advice as therapy advice. But it was very helpful for me to uncover the persona. because So I was super shy and super anxious. Well, I wasn't super shy. Like, I guess I was a bit of a class clown. But I was very anxious about public speaking. And I can remember my first performance. My voice was trembling. Like, it was crazy. And the only reason I was doing it is because after that mentor I mentioned, uh, who did all this persona work, Colin Campbell, after he died of cancer while I was his assistant. And after he died, I thought, oh, I should do something to kind of like, he was really important to me. I should try doing what he did as, as some kind of cathartic exercise. And then I did it and people kind of liked it and I did it more and people liked it more. And then anyway, um, I, that actually was how I got out of my shell and how I became the person I am. Yeah, today, it's so. also just uh, growing up out of adolescence. It's a, it, it's maybe just a normal trajectory that to you seems a lot heavier than it actually was. If you if you take a group of 15 people, like a lot of people were more anxious than they showed. And mm -hmm. I, I want I I, I, I just want to uh, take a step back because it, with yeah. that article, there's this expectation that healthy behavior is um, partying and getting high and uh, getting messed up <laughs> with everybody and that if you're in your room playing with model trains, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. So, um, no, I don't I know. That's I don't, a great point. Yeah, I don't know about the suicide rates. Like, that's definitely not healthy. But, um, and it, it also to, to counter your story, my story was a little bit the reverse, where in, in high school, I really enjoyed spending a lot of time with friends and hanging out. And uh, as I got older, I got more and more like, oh, I want to get to work. Mm. And working is by myself. So I, I get bored at parties or social events because I'm like, I'm not making anything. Uh, where before I would enjoy being at a party and now I'm just like... It's, I, I don't know how much of that is, is hiding because it's social anxiety or it's just, this is not interesting. I'd rather be writing something now. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is like... I, and that's said, maybe I what I see, yeah. see with the teenagers where... They'll go to a high school party and it's generic music and it's generic food and and they and like maybe what's at home is more interesting. Yeah, maybe the yeah maybe some of the interactions on there. Well, that's the way I felt because on my computer it, anything was possible. It was this magical land. I was programming. I was like I had so much power and control. Yeah. And then I I would be I, it was a bit of a joke. I was always forced to get off the computer and you know and like. Uh, <clears throat> I would literally be forced, like people would have to pry me off of it uh, because, and I also had emotional attachment to it, which I think I've spoken about before, where I would kind of like, kind of think of it in a way as a friend or <laughs> like it's a little cheesy, yeah. but like, it was like my best friend, like it never judged yeah, me, but it, me to do all kinds but of it's, it, I, I think it's a cliche of like, oh, it's my best friend, but if you would, um, if you would think of someone like Nietzsche who had a hard time dealing with people and he would spend mm. a lot of time walking around the, the mountains to get inspiration and to think. Uh, would he have had a better life if he was trying to adjust and be social and fit the norm of a polite conversation and go to church and hang out with people? Or was his work, was, was his thing or developing his, even as miserable as he was, he had a better life really uh, delving in the depth of, depths of his own mind? Right, I mean, like, but there is this argument that, like... Um, I mean, you know, maybe what I'm saying is, yeah. there's such an... After scarcity, 
scarcity is the first thing. Like you have to overcome famine. So maybe the generation of our grandparents are like, just get a job and, and make it till 70. Then you're a successful person. Mm-hmm. They never talked about happiness. But then the next generation had everything. Like they were not going to die of hunger. So they asked their kids, I just want you to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so there's this emphasis on happiness. But it's a weird question to ask. Like some people are just kind of grumpy. But if yeah. they want to... And so... Well, my least favorite uh, comment about millennials is like, oh, they were coddled by their parents to make, and their parents all taught them that they were they were special and unique. And then that, and then it's so tough when they get out into the world, and they don't just everything just doesn't fall in their lap. And I'm just like, I find that so patronizing, it's very condescending. Like, yeah, yeah, it's very condescending because like. They they have every like, right to consider themselves. Yeah, they're like, who's the one that's saying this? Well, not only that, they're like burdened with climate change and student loans. Like, yeah, thank like thank you situation. thank you to generation that coddled us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no wonder like, you have anxiety. Very, yeah. Well, you're, you're never going to get special. out of debt, and you're probably the, the the if you buy a house, it'll be flooded. So yeah, yeah. Why yeah, are yeah, you yeah. why are you anxious? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't you be happy? <laughs> Yeah, it's like you've got this baby. Oh, poor little baby. Oh, are you feeling ready to go outside? And you just drop them in a burning hellscape. <laughs> like, oh, you don't like it. Oh, you're so special. <laughs> anyway, I just find it, it always comes off as yeah. the most patronizing thing. And then it's also usually like someone of privilege and power that's saying that. You're just like, come on. Like some, because it's apparently managers have the hardest time but, managing millennials. And, and then maybe uh, what's interesting is a. Uh, uh, to speak about the present and our own experiences, how to. So one one thing, uh, I we just spoke about we spoke about teaching before. Yeah, and, just and, uh, just like uh, briefly. And did we talk about it on the last episode? But we were talking about how <clears throat> if you want to give back, maybe teaching is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And then we both kind of agreed that. Teaching is a non-distributed form of information transfer. So you're talking to 30 people. And with mm-hmm. this podcast, we can talk to a potential unlimited audience and it's available at any time. So sure, th- so th- but the quality is low. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as, well, it's not as personal, but it's not as one-to-one. But my point was maybe that what really helped me with teaching is quotes from... So I, I often read interviews or look at interviews with artists and then Jeff Koons comes up a lot, but all his work is about the removal of anxiety. So there's an anxiety of taste and a hierarchy of taste. So certain things belong in the museum and certain things don't. So he said, right. okay, I'm going to put a puppy dog in the museum because I want to remove anxiety and I want acceptance of all tastes. Um, so it's interesting to me that art making comes with a huge anxiety and um the anxiety is different from doing sports or doing karaoke because every gesture you do is immediately recorded. The, the, mm-hmm. S, the, the activity of art means, and maybe you with performance, it's a different approach, and maybe that's part of it. But what uh, I'm trying to say is if you're an amateur singer or if you're an amateur tennis player and you're bad at it, you're still having a good time. But if you're an amateur painter, immediately your gestures are there on the canvas and just staring at you and there's a lot of anxiety with that more more yeah, i think than, than with like going jogging so th- maybe I, that's my point is like people yeah. do sports very easily for fun and if you're not good at it so what you just throw a ball around okay. but there's this weird anxiety with art making but you know and don't forget though that the, well i would say that that's true for a certain period of time you know malcolm Glad- gladwell talks about this like 
I think it's 5,000 hours or five years, you know, to become an expert at something. Malcolm Gladwell, the author. One but of that's kind of bullshit. Just, like, I, I, could, I could never become an expert at basketball because I'm not tall enough. Like, this is some things that... But you could hit a good jump shot. Like, No, I, I, yeah, but did, you can't just pick... You, you have a, a brain and a body type uh, that are geared towards something. So it's not like... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I could become good at... At everything, there's just certain things that you have an inclination. Right. I guess for me, like having been anxious about performance <clears throat> when I was a younger person, it's ridiculous that I'm perform nearly like every week today, and I don't, and I rarely think about it, and um, and I enjoy it. I get anxious. I will say I do get anxious about it um, because, and I assume that you would even get anxious about a new work from time to time. I get I get anxious about making physical works because they take up space. So there's a very big difference to me than with making di- mm. digital. If you write a haiku and it sucks, then there's no yeah. S- yeah. But that's like you've got the anxiety of like a mover or a one eight hundred junk dot com yeah. like yeah. <laughs> kind of person. Like where are we gonna put this? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. That's funny you said that because like. I do like if it's a new, if it's a brand new idea and one person uh, I was re- I was given advice that I often give to people today when I was in school I can't remember which which professor it was that I had but I said like if you're not afraid of what you're doing you're not anxious about it then you're probably not pushing yourself I hate yourself these cliches enough. I hate is, is that is that a bad cliche Yeah it's it's because if you if you're a calligrapher do you have to be nervous or do you have to just enjoy it every day like, it's the it's the type of people this is often people in advertising who say that and they often (laughs) they probably have a drum kit in their office because they're like yeah I can play the drums I don't give a fuck yeah and it's like no sometimes it's good if you're really good at making croissants you keep making croissants why do you all of a sudden have to then become a butcher and then become a ninja and then become a botanist just because you have to it says who if if you're really good at at, uh, uh, watching TV then watch TV I think one reason is because like you might be prevent you might not if you're like if your goal is to see you might not be seeing everything because no. you can't see yourself well, right the well, eye can't see I, itself there's this so, there's this silicon valley ethos of like you have to live up to your potential which is the opposite of being content mm-hmm. so but I, I'm I talking about self-awareness right mm-hmm. and by trying other things you kind of get you you get increasingly more self-aware but, because but you, we get back to the, the topic of anxiety and so this silicon yeah. valley mantra of like fail is good try everything be a daredevil fail, fast, fail often yeah mm-hmm. and it it will always give you the feeling of restlessness i don't that's for some for some people that's okay but for most people why do they have to be all they can be and live up to their potential why can't they just hang out with people they like yeah okay so you're I think and, and, and that's maybe can, and on, on Instagram and, and there's a lot of anxiety and the t- I don't know if you have people with burnout but there's this thing of like I'm not living the most amazing life yeah we've talked about fear of missing out before and then what's the new one it's uh, we, joy of missing out the, yeah joy of missing out <laughs> you didn't come up with it but like mm-hmm. uh, we were promoting uh, yeah of course like there. There is a pushback against that. I mean, that it's and, this marketing yeah. thing where it, yeah. when people market like raw food, for example. Mm-hmm. And so you're eating stuff, uh, you're living a normal life, you, you get the flu once a year and you, you get up out of bed and you feel okay. But then someone comes along and says, if you follow my lead, you will be so much happier. And so it's, they're selling you something. And they're playing mm-hmm. into your fears. And one of the fears is, 
I, I could have way more. I could I could sleep two hours a night instead of seven, mm-hmm. and I could do and I could build an amazing car, and I could have a swimming pool. You you know what I mean? Yep. No, I mean yeah. last night I was out in Toronto. It's Nuit Blanche, which is like in every in most cities, Nuit Blanche is not really a big deal. By some reason, not because of quality <laughs> or like you know it being a good experience. It is a very popular event here. For those who don't know, Nuit Blanche means like white night. It means people stay out all night, and it's usually like it's a light art. festival, right? Yeah, it's like a festival of well, it's an here. It's like an art festival so there's like art installations and performances and things. but it's not just projection based it's all kinds of stuff um, no it's all kinds of stuff um, though there are projection works as well um, but it's ridiculously popular and it mostly because the bars are also open all night uh, which is not allowed here so there are like the, I, no joke the attendance is usually over a million in a city of just, you know, three million or whatever. <laughs> and so, like, one in three people is out in the streets. And it's really, like, I'm thinking about anxiety here because <clears throat> some friends had an installation, and I've performed in this context before. And imagine you're, normally you're used to, like, you know, maybe half a dozen people showing up to your performance. But then when 100,000 people show up, <laughs> <laughs> and you've got, like, your little, like, what, like, your little, light kit or whatever you and got everybody's set up in a corner looking bored. And, you're, and you're surrounded and people but no not only that they're like not even necessarily paying attention they're yeah. drinking anyway and the lines are snaking around every like for blocks like people are waiting three hours to see you do your thing the 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 scale and proportion uh is absurd it i only bring it up because it's interesting to think about in relationship with anxiety because in the art world we're often anxious that no one's going to see or care about what we do but like the worst thing that can happen, one this is another cliche. But the worst thing that can happen is that you be you're successful because then everyone's watching, and that creates a certain kind of anxiety as well. Um, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but like I have often when I'm doing new work, I thought like, oh, I really hope no one shows up. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope I could just like sneak through this I, because I, the next time yeah. it'll be better. I have to say that a big part of overcoming that anxiety for me is putting things online. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a A B test, or you just kind of see mm-hmm. how people respond. And often with works that I'm super excited about, people are like, eh, okay. And then something I'm unsure of, <laughs> like, oh, I love this. This is great. This is the best thing you did. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's it's often very different from what you expect. Yeah, I mean, I launched a major new project this week. Um, this like lean artist artist accelerator thing. And our Good Point t-shirt got way more attention <laughs> than this thing I've invested the there last three months in getting Well, you made a, a hit crop top, yeah. <laughs> Remember, goodpointpodcast.com. T-shirts are on sale now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, like I, I agree with you. So my tactic has usually always been to either leak something really early. Spray and pray. Or like... Yeah, just see what happens, see how people respond to it. But I don't know if in social media, like this is to take us back to that I generation or Generation Z, you know, they're also like putting stuff up and then getting really anxious about whether people like it or not. And what you've always been very supportive of me, just like, hey, Jeremy, just do what you like, do your thing without the influence of others. And if they like it, fine. If they don't, they don't. And I, I've always thought that was really good Raphael Rosendahl advice. Like, I'll put that on the yeah, and, cover and of just your book. just to to be clear. This is what I say. It's not that I intrinsically completely. Uh, 
this is what I try to tell myself. It's not that I'm completely, I just put stuff out there and I am completely detached from the results, but it's an, it's a platonic ideal. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's something that it's you'd something like I to strive towards too. So the the advice that I give yeah. you is I give to myself as well. It's not that I am completely detached. Of course, I want mm-hmm. the work to sell or to do well or to res- yeah. resonate or whatever. But uh, <laughs> I just always imagine you with your sort of like Dutch manner, being like, hmm, "Didn't sell. I guess the next one will sell a million. Like <laughs> yeah. Like, well, the, the the thing is, you, and maybe that's the thing with anxiety. And Jeff Koons always talks about acceptance, but um, yeah. it's it. I think anxiety comes a lot from wanting to change things that are unchangeable. Mm-hmm. So um, the ideas you have, you can't really do much about it. You would just you have this brain. You can read a bit of stuff and you can look at some stuff, but I don't know if that'll give you better ideas. So the ideas that come out of you, that's it. And mm-hmm. so then if you're upset that your ideas are not good enough or that the world doesn't like your ideas enough, yeah, there's not much you can do about it. But I think what's very interesting is that, you know, we've been talking about digital media and relationship with being creative. And, um, you know, a lot of people will say like the the exchange like the the cycle and the amount of attention paid to in the attention economy online is increasingly short right so it's like you know maximum one one and a half minutes of reading or watching time like you know three seconds of like an image or whatever do you also uh, feel that way with your own browsing behavior well what i was just going to say is like potentially you could argue or one point would be that you know, given that short attention span and that lack of reflection, that it increases anxiety because anxiety really kind of is fostered by feedback loops. Um, and so potentially like a negative thought spirals out of control because you don't really give it, you don't really step out of it and say, and like consider it from that third person perspective I was talking about earlier. You just let it kind of feed on itself. And I, I don't know if that's ever happened to you online. You know, when you're online, you're looking at, all of art history and thinking where do I fit in as a young artist that could be very overwhelming I, I, yeah for me it was uh, before the internet it seemed art history was so heavy because oh they already painted this they already painted that they already performed mm-hmm. this they already sculpted that yeah and then the internet came along it's like well nobody made a website with toilet paper so I can be but the first know, one <laughs> I see what you're saying but you know I the way I was thinking about it is like you know when you with the internet medical diagnosis changed like radically so it'd be like hmm, what's this little rash on my hand and yeah you'd be like yeah. you type rash on your hand in, and you're like oh my god cancer I have skin cancer like <laughs> yeah. two minutes later <laughs> oh, oh yeah how many clicks to cancer yeah because you're missing the the, so- the social dynamic I don't think we should discount that like a lot of how we work through our anxiety is by positioning our anxiety in relationship with the anxiety of others. So by speaking to another person, you know, and couples do this all the time, like, do you think I'm crazy? Or like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. chill, chill. Like, that's not the end of the world, right? You need that that social foil because it gives you, it gets you outside of your own head. Yeah, um, for those who are lucky enough to f- find a, a life partner that you can bounce ideas. Or friend idea. or yeah, whomever. Or, yeah, like, or your family. So, yeah. So if we were to come back to, you know, our Generation Z again, who's, uh, or I generation, I don't know which I like better. The I generation, I feel, gives too much credit to Apple, but whatever. Um, well, they created you know, this the, the, the smartphone category that, right. so yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, 
Okay, we'll give it to them. All right, Apple, there you go. Um, so, yeah, because they can own the suicide thing, too, in their next app. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, have you now seen the ads for Now comes with 50% more. <laughs> have you seen the ads for their new portrait mode no? thing? Have you seen their new ads for, like, no, portrait no. mode on the new phone? It's... I don't know. Uh, well, anyway, just, it's a it's a it's a woman walking down the street and she's sort of changing it up and singing, and they've reached this point of it's like it's like French cinema or something, like uh. big wave cinema, where that it's just kind of an absurd level of like there's almost no advertising left in it, which I kind of enjoy that they're at this egocentric point now where they can just like change the filter of the face. And I did a video a long time ago where I speak and I change the filter on my face as I'm speaking, and they do this in this ad, that they can just do that and that's it, and then put the Apple logo <laughs> I just think it's just like crazy that we let they have that kind of cultural dominance, that they're culturally that significant and that they're also like saying like a filter just changed like, you know, culture and, and all we do is, you know, we just came up with this or whatever. Anyway, studio lighting by Apple. Yeah. Um, but it... it, it I think you interact more with how many of your employees would be the the, the designers or creatives or the people on your team and mm-hmm. and the people also in your incubator you what I'm saying is simply said you work a lot, a lot with young people more than me so do you yeah. notice them having a hard time working in a group or speaking up um yeah well I led a residency this summer and I, I'll, there were a lot of younger people in it and I was my I'm maybe some of them are listening and maybe this is something that they need to hear <clears throat> not in a judgmental way just in a as you know something I was reflecting on with the director of the residency um and it might be it maybe it's a Norwegian thing but I don't think so oh yeah it is yeah you're like already <laughs> already yeah 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 this is a Norwegian okay. thing for sure wait but I haven't even said what the thing is yet well the thing <laughs> it's a the thing, thing. What, the thing was that we were running like I wanted to do group critiques in a residency come on right like critique that's like that's something that's the that's the fundamental group activity for art making. Well, I'm against and critiques, but have go we ever ahead. done an episode on critiques? I don't know. <laughs> I, anyway, I, I but, strongly disagree with the whole premise of a critique. But, okay, yeah. what well, they were so bad at critique, like so bad well, at participating in critique, so bad at delivering feedback, and then also I noticed this within my own design culture, um, and I started to talk to people and ask them about what they thought it was. And they thought, well, it's a way where you get approval for something. I was like, no, it's like, not that at all. That's not what- That's, that's why they what, tear you, you down. It, and it's not supposed to be that either. It's a, you know, like, it's supposed to help you understand Well, I, I think if, if the class was called observation, I would agree with yeah. the word. But the word critique already means it's whining. It's, it's more... But critical doesn't mean that. That's not yeah, what critical means. But it does in the... It, it, you're being very critical. You don't say you're being very observant. So I, I think if you want to observe the work and discuss it on a neutral level, it, it, it should be called perception or observation and not critique even Mm. maybe historically the word was neutral by now if you're saying you're being very critical it doesn't mean you're you're giving compliments well i was just thinking in art school i loved critique um and sometimes i was saying like i was talking to some designers about it because you know designers get critique they'll say like this was my objective you know and and then the critique will be like well you should choose this typeface or why would you do why did you put that line there? what's the goal and how do you get to the goal and yeah exactly but 
But in art school, you'd say like my, you know, you might be like, this is a work about my identity. You know, uh, when I was a child, I'm laying uh, my soul bare. My sister's, uh, yeah, my sister's friend me. was killed or whatever. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And then they'd be like, well, that's a stupid thing. <laughs> like, and it's like critique about your identity. You're like yeah. you're a horrible human being. Yeah. You're like, so I went through like seven years of being called a horrible human being, and and I actually think it was good for me <laughs> because you come out like. At, at least this is the myth of art school, that, and I, it was the myth I lived, and I don't know if this is true for anyone else. I'd love if actually our listeners send in their nightmare critique stories so we could share them with people. But the nightmare critiques, some, I always, the best critiques I ever had were ones that just humiliated me, like all the way, to, like, I still use this term, you're solipsistic, because like I had a critique with um, Vim Delvoy's assistant, and he said, Jeremy, you're so solipsistic. And I didn't know what it meant, and I looked it up, and I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm a terrible too. human being. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, for I me, for me the, the, there's a the whole generation problem with critiques where I think the older generation always feels attacked by the younger generation, even if they don't admit it. Because in the end, the younger generation has more time and more future. So people feel threatened. And mm-hmm. so then they start using their social hierarchy well I read more books than you I know more people than you and so you're right. ignorant and then I'll tell you a thing or two about art history and you're dumb and, uh, it, right. there's such an imbalance there but you have such a big ego when you're that age like don't you remember yeah but having, it, like, I, 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 I remember um, when you go through art school you, you have a, at least in, in the olden times before the computer, I had a, a huge folders full of big sheets of collages and drawings and paintings. And, and every time I moved, you thin out that folder a little bit and you keep mm-hmm. it at your parents, but then you're like, okay, which, which ones are important to keep? Because right. a lot of them... And I could completely see where I was being myself and where uh, the teachers were like, we need to tear this Raphael down. He's making all this <laughs> cartoony, uh, bright-colored stuff, but let's... Let's get his uh, hands and feet a little dirty. So they're like, okay, why don't you tear up the paper and pour some tea on it and then light it on fire and just just go crazy. And then I would do that. And, <laughs> Always lighting it on fire. Yeah, and then i do that and then hang it on the wall and then all the teachers super happy. Oh, we broke him, good. And then yeah, yeah, you yeah. go through the folder and it's like, okay, well, this is where Mr. Such and Such told me to do that and this, is where Ms., and this is where I was myself, which is much closer to who I am and what I was supposed to do. And... Who are they to have this premise of like, oh, let's tear it, let's, let's, these cliches of like, don't repeat yourself, take risks, put on a funny hat, embarrass yourself. I don't know who came up Hmm. with that that's a good idea. What's left then? Have you you ever heard the term shit sandwich? (laughs) (laughs) What about it? In in regards to critique. In critique, there's like this, you know, the the best practice. is shit sandwich some people call it oreo but you're supposed to do like uh, your critiques actually supposed to be six like 66 percent or 75 percent positive reinforcement (laughs) right so like i think your teachers probably were just bad at you know were bad at critique but like it should be here are the things that are working towards your goal and here's like and here's the one thing that you could do to improve that that goal right but you're supposed to do good bad good and and so that and but most people get miss the good part, and they're like they like you said they read the word critical or critique, and they just think it's all about. Well, it hits. Yeah, the negative hits hits harder. Yeah. 
And I think that that's also our attitude online. Like if you look at, you know, people hate Twitter and we should talk about how Twitter doubled their character limit. So that means you can be twice as hateful on, on Twitter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that this Generation Z is the victim mostly of cyberbullying. And that's what's causing all this suicide. Right. And <clears throat> the way we're engaging online, if it's not creating anxiety, it's it's intentionally like increasing our power through. Uh, hateful bullying of others, right? Or shaming of others. And yeah, yeah there's definitely the, something the, where in, in, in physical form, you just wouldn't go and tell someone like, uh, oh, go, go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't. Like, I remember Kristen uh, last year, she was like assaulted in our building by like some, like there's a wealthy couple that was touring our the, the condo that we live in. And like she was like, they were saying really rude things. So she walked up to them and said, "I hope you never, you never get to live here." Something like that. And like this man pushed her physically and started swearing at her. You know, we got the police involved and stuff. But like that, it was so traumatic. We still yeah, talk that's about a huge this thing. Yeah. It was caught on camera. The whole building was talking about. But this, like, I don't want to make you know the, this physical comparison too close to the online. But we do kind of the online equivalent every day, where we kind of reach out. And we push people's buttons intentionally, like this fucking idiot. Like, right? Yeah. We've just and there are people that have literally destroyed others' lives that way. Um, but the number of times that we go out and praise each other beyond just the like button, right? Like, here's a here's an idea. Like, to find an artist or a friend or a peer that you really appreciate and write something on their wall about all of the great things that they've done, because that's actually best practice, right? Like, and you know, it's funny because doing this podcast i've recognized this more than ever before because the like listeners will come up and thank me or you for doing an episode about something yeah and I just, yeah it's, it's just very such different a generous from, uh, gift. It, it, it's funny because even with the critique of the podcasts uh they're usually on email and we might get critique that we're uh, too much focused on one side of a conversation or we didn't see it from that perspective or that we're too much speaking from our own privileged position or things like that and those critiques hit me way harder than when it's about my works it, my mm-hmm. my visual works and somehow especially the way you talk or the way you you sound and things like mm. it's a very personal critique compared to oh your work's kind of bland or whatever yeah i actually don't have that much anxiety about the podcast except that like when I, as soon as I meet someone, they say they love the podcast. I immediately, as a Canadian, I say, I'm sorry. I know last episode was just <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and then I start to say like, well, we should have talked about this because yeah. there's all these things that we leave out that we always forget to say um, after we've recorded. But anyway, yeah. it, uh, all, I, all I meant to say is that that's, that is what critique is. Critique is also appreciation. Yeah, it's funny. That can relieve anxiety. I wanted to get back. You spoke about your trajectory of uh, being alone on the computer all through high school and then uh, becoming a persona Mm. and becoming more engaged with people. Yeah. I feel like for me, it was kind of the opposite trajectory. So the further I get. And so it's not that I feel so much anxiety going to social things, but I just often feel like it's a chore Mm-hmm. And that I make a calculation beforehand, okay, it's going to be this much effort and what could be the things that I gain from it because it's not fun, it's work. Mm-hmm. And so it's work yeah. and I have to do this as an artist. Maybe this is something to talk about because a lot of people feel like they make good enough work but because they lack the the partying skills, they're not getting ahead in the art world. 
I see what you're saying, like um, because so, they're not a good, yeah. cool kid. Or yeah, like, and so it's it's like, like fifty percent should be studio yeah. time and fifty percent should be social time, ideally, or whatever the equation is. Mm-hmm. Or maybe people feel that way. Um, well, I mean, like, and the general population uh, uh, just has a huge amount of anxiety about engaging with art, right? We've talked about that. Previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, like any business, it's it's based on personal relationships. So the more you are familiar, the more you can build trust and be like, well, this is a person I could work with more because, the, mm-hmm. yeah. A friend of mine so said, "So how do you deal? How do you deal with that?" Well, I I constantly make that equation of like, oh, there's a panel talk. In general, I don't like the format of a panel talk. I think that no one does, they don't really. get anywhere. But I'm like, I should show my face and be around and be supportive of the people. But then you make the mm-hmm. equation, okay, it's that far away. It's going to cost me an hour. I could be at home having a cheese plate with my wife and watch a good movie, <laughs> or I could go to this. <laughs> talk about the history of media formats and it's not going to go anywhere and it's cold and it's raining and <laughs> that's the solidarity though like the art world relies on this like yeah kind of solidarity that it is cold you know you don't really care about the history of these media yeah, formats yeah, yeah. But <laughs> this person spent the last 10 years writing this book yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know, you were there when we were both, the, the idea started. You had a tea together that oh, maybe I should write this book about media formats. <laughs> like there's, it. that's friendship though. Like I, I yeah, think, like, I, I let's do, take it out, out of the art world context. You, you yeah. would do that for a friend, right? But as much as, much as there's... You don't want to go to their wedding. No, but as much as there's bad sides to the internet and, and putting people in a cocoon or bullying... When you look at something like podcasts versus panel talks, I think it's a such it, it's such a superior transfer of information. Like you can listen mm. to it at any time. The people doing the panel talk are not attacking each other it, it, on a mm. podcast, but like calmly speaking their mind. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, I'm I'm surprised the art world doesn't do more podcasts. They always do panel talks, which thirty people can attend, maybe maybe a hundred. Yeah. They might record it. They usually don't put it online because they don't know how to compress a video file. And then if they do, it's inaudible. <laughs> it's it's such an inefficient form, the panel talk. But there so, are definitely exceptions to that rule, but yeah, you're generally correct. Yeah. Yeah. And um so yeah, we're going all over the place. But I'm talking no, I think I'm fine. talking about the social anxiety. Like there's a bit of anxiety of like being in a room with smart asses and everybody's trying to show how smart they are and speaking up at a panel talk and then you have the thing where people want to ask a question but they actually want to make a statement so they ask a 15 minute question mm-hmm. um, and all the yeah, anxiety a- and calculations around that like is it worth my time should I go uh, am I going to feel weird and, yeah yeah I mean this week I was on a I had to like host a, a weird event where you get like 15 professionals in a room and like you moderate a conversation and you help them solve their challenges or the group's supposed to come together. Like, so it's not like a panel and it sounds really good on paper, right? Which is like, let's get a group of people together. In this case, it was product managers. So, you know, um, like people who build software products, all software products, um, by the way, have like teams that lead them. And those teams usually at the head of the team, the person that's kind of coordinating development and design is called a product manager, sometimes a product owner. So this was a meetup for product managers and product owners to solve their challenges, right? And I, by the way, I'm not a product owner, but I was invited to like moderate a discussion on user research. And the also three, because three, because you're known as a public speaker, like you're you're known as someone who's comfortable in front of an audience and spontaneous, even I if you fake I'm, it. 
Yeah, but in that world, I wasn't, though. I'm Maybe I'm becoming known uh, <laughs> because it's like, it's a funny world. Anyway, so, uh, th- you know, there are three presentations. Uh, th- so three people that were going to do three different discussions. And we the weird thing is we had to pitch, like, our thing. And already this, I think, puts my peers in an uncomfortable position um, because, like, to, there's, like, a group of, like, 50 or 75 people, and you're like, okay, I'm going to give you p- a pitch why you should join my discussion, right? And then you know, and then the next person does it, and the next person does it. So I give my pitch. Apparently, I went long on my pitch. Then the other two pitches were really short, and I didn't really even kind of know what they were presenting. It wasn't fair because they were rushed because of me. And then every, 100% of the people stayed in my room and didn't go to the other rooms. <laughs> Right? So they had to like force everyone out of my room, which created a weird anxiety. Like now I was anxious that I'd drawn people away from the other rooms with my Oh pit. no, I'm too successful. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's not successful because then I had to moderate a conversation with like 18 people and the v- diversity of experience. And it was insane. So I'm like, hey, have you, you know, like, I don't know, I have all these very specific nerdy questions that I was asking about product management. And, uh, and it was re- it was really really hard. I I will say the format is interesting, and maybe panels should evolve into this, which is like, it was peer to peer. But I would work so hard to get the peers to talk to one another. You know, like. But it, yeah, I think panels are just as difficult as conference calls. Well, this is like that, where it's like I want all of you to, and this is one of the rules of critique that I picked up from reading some books over the last few weeks. But really, it's about group discussion and anxiety, which is as the number of people increases, turns out beyond 4.6 and specifically anything beyond six or seven, it becomes increased, the, the level of anxiety increases substantially. And maybe, so the maybe ideal- that anxiety is, is a signal. You know how sometimes your body will become physically mm-hmm. ill because you have too much stress. It's a, it, there's a mental attack on you but your body will tell you because you you have a willpower to go further than your comfort zone but at some point your body will collapse you'll have back pain or whatever and it's it's an alarm your body is telling you no this is not a good idea you need to take a vacation and well, and so the maybe the same thing with the anxiety at panel talks is like your brain telling you this is a very inefficient use of my time and that's why i'm feeling miserable well it's not only that but as a Here's what I can say as a performer and in this context versus a perform- classic performance context is that even with I don't know 15 or 20 people that were in that room for me for it to for me to feel less anxious and for them to feel less anxious which is what I was trying to achieve they all had to earn each other's trust to do that they all had to speak openly about their struggles and failures but to do that each had to take selfish time time for themselves and therefore steal time from someone else, <laughs> right? So it immediately puts you in this conflict exchange. And this happens in all critique environments where, because I've been interviewing people about this as an issue, because I'm trying to improve critiques at work. And people will say, well, I don't want to speak because I would be taking the voice away from someone else. And then the leader is more important than me and I don't want to look stupid in front of them. And so there's all this anxiety built around collaboration Anyway, if you can get the group below six, apparently this, so I'm going to run some experiments over the next few weeks where we try smaller groups, but like the ideal critique group, and maybe this is going to be true for, you know, kids too with their cell phones. Like if they can get their circle down below six to a small group, like the internet's made 
made us in has put us in this position where it's like one to a million, right? Yeah, it's like the it's worst not, conference call. <laughs> exactly, it's the worst panel or the worst conference call. It's like six of us against the world. It doesn't <laughs> anyway. Like, it, I I do believe that's why Snapchat's probably you know when it does its job well is very successful because it's an intimate story between six friends or whatever. But there's a lot more optimization we can do to build trust on the internet and create communities that privilege and allow for trustful exchanges because this is just a natural way of being this is part of why i love classical symphony concerts if you see 150 people at the peak of their ability all working on the same piece of music at the same time yes it's such an amazing thing to see like a band is maybe four people or dj is one person but But that's also but a band even like seeing six band members who really are having fun together well, they they often don't. It's just at that moment, and then afterwards they kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when you do see it, you know it, right? Because you've seen a live, you've seen. So a there's band something perform. beautiful about about humans working together on something, uh, especially and if that something is not uh, killing each other. But in my only my good point is that that's all based on trust, and trust is where anxiety, in trust and anxiety are 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 are, are, uh, are polar opposites. Polar opposites, yeah. And if you can build trust in any relationship, and that that means admitting you're wrong a lot of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Admitting that you're doing a bad job, and that that's, and then having the other person say, "But that's okay. I did a bad job yesterday." But I, that's I, where the good things start. Yeah, I will say this. I, I think the core of our audience is a lot of nerdy artists, the people mm-hmm. who who, um, as I said, nerds are someone with an obsessive interest who like to spend a lot of time on their own looking at that interest. And I think a lot of people feel this anxiety about going to art events and meeting the right people and making things happen. Yeah. And so a big part of anxiety is when you want something and someone else is in control, whether that gets shown or not, or whether that happens or not. Yeah. Um, Same way you might have anxiety when you go through customs and the customs officer, just by the look of you, could decide to give you a hard time or not. And so, so I bet a few it, people though reach out to me that were anxious about getting to the art world, and they had really a really good strategy, like that I would like to share, which was that they told me they're like, "I'm really anxious about this," and then they asked for help. Right? They said like, "Hey, what should I do?" And I was like, "We should have coffee once a week, and we'll just talk about art." And that's mm-hmm. what I do with these people, right? Yeah. And then, then they learned like, "Oh, he doesn't always know the answer," right? Like, I don't have, and hopefully our podcast listeners know you and I like. We have a lot, you know, a lot of expertise that we bring up, but we're kind of just bringing up whatever we did last week when we think about it, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe a few things from our past, but like generally speaking, we're just observing the world around us and reporting it back to you. And you're probably doing the same thing. And you could have as good or probably better. I would I would argue probably fantastically better podcasts <laughs> by any other two people. But it's only because we've built trust that our rapport is strong enough that you and I can kind of comfortably, sub, well, you know. You, you also have that amazing together. voice that you were born with. That's like full of flesh. It's, it's very addic- addictive. <laughs> yeah. You just can't stop listening. Right. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, uh, I have this natural, sexy voice. I just can't help it. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, all, it's the nasal passage. You can't fake that. Blocked yeah. that uh, it creates that. I'm deep just here along sound. for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
radio personality, soothing radio personality voices aside, yeah. uh, I just think that um, it's it's the trust that you and I have uh, that would make or break this. It, it is this funny thing about art that, uh, for me, art, uh, a lot of it is about living life on your own terms, just doing whatever you feel like. Mm-hmm. And so if if doing whatever you feel like is not going to annoying parties, then that should be part of it. But then that might... There's these conflicting goals because it's like, okay, if I show my face and go around, then I'll get more exhibitions, make more money, have more freedom. But at the same time, I don't want to do that. So, Yeah. Well, can we think of any artists that channeled their anxiety into their work? Like, I'm I just think, thinking, uh, like, what's his name? Um, who did all the stuffed animal sculptures? He, he committed, oh, he, he killed himself. Uh, he's from uh, LA. Oh, the Sonic Youth family. cover and stuff. Uh, that's not. Uh, <laughs> Why we are we blanking on? <laughs> this well, is I was weird. gonna. I, I was thinking like Sophie Calla uh, was one like you know who, a performance artist who had herself like followed um, and took pictures of people that way, like creating sort of a stalker anxiety. Or who are you thinking of though? Um. Almost There's there. an artist um, in at UCLA in Los Angeles, uh, Lauren McCarthy, and she Mike created, Kelly. Duh. Okay. Oh, Mike Kelly. Yeah, yeah. of course. But Why it, did I? Well, I he, know that. he he's maybe a perfect example. His his whole work is about teenage awkwardness and shame. Yeah. And then he killed himself. So he lived up to the work. I was going to bring up an artist friend of mine who hopefully doesn't mind that I mentioned that she's incredibly anxious, Lauren McCarthy. <laughs> um, and she makes work with technology. Um, she's done a few works. One where she often like will take an app or like a technology that you're we're using and she'll like recreate it as like a performance that involves her own like labor. So it might be like she had an app where you could have her stalk you and she would send you pictures of you throughout the day. And you could sign up to have her follow you around. Uh, I think it was called like Follow Me. I'll put it in the show notes. And then she recently created a, a work where we have all these like smart speakers in our smart homes, like Alexa and Google Home and stuff. And by the way, there's in the tech news this week, there was like five new versions. They of, made like seven hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's like yeah. So now there's like like twenty five different ways to have Amazon Echo in your home. But she so she created a version of that where she puts cameras in your home and watches you, and then like sneaks into your home and like <laughs> makes optimizations for you, like cleans the dishes if you didn't do it, stuff like that. So, Reorganize your closet. Yeah, yeah uh, but she is has admitted to me and I hope she doesn't mind she'll have to like yell at me and say Jeremy why do you do that but I think she said this publicly in artist talks that she is very a huge amount of social anxiety and through doing these like social works you know through like observing others and stuff it's one of the ways she channels that anxiety that social anxiety into a creative practice which I think is um again something I said I did early in my career that can be really successful actually um and so so how did Mike Kelly do that well, he did it very unsuccessfully because he he didn't <laughs> overcome he anything. Himself. Yeah, right, right, right. He just Sorry, amplified it, I guess. But I was just thinking back about the the '60s and this idea of pre-computer and everybody very physical. Everybody's okay with each other, but there was a lot of chemistry involved to overcome that social anxiety. 
yeah, there was a lot of you mean like oh you mean I like mean drugs. Uh, drugs. Yeah. Yeah, but that was so used. This this, this yeah. uh, free love thing didn't mean they overcame their social anxiety. It mean they just were fucked up. But the yeah, I mean and they took all kinds of drugs and experimented with consciousness and states of consciousness, but they also experimented with um, different ways of living. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to a friend yesterday who, whose collective recently split up, um, which, by the way, happens eventually to all collectives, and you shouldn't be so hard on yourself if you're in a collective and it's not going well. <laughs> but they also live together, right? And and he's like, he said, I was like, would you ever do it again? He's like, I'm still staunchly committed to the idea that we don't lead, need to live life the way it's been sort of like uh, standardized. The, the default. Right? Yeah, that the the idea of a commune, which came out of the 1960s and 70s, was like actually the idea of being there for your neighbor rather than like putting up a fence, taking the fence down, inviting them over to live with you kind of thing. Um, and I actually really, I, I thought that was quite a, a nice and beautiful thing to say that he Are hadn't, you- even though his collective had broken up, he hadn't he hadn't broken up with communal living would you are you interested in living a, a communal life in no, a group no not at all I no. mean I've had <laughs> I mean now that I I mean maybe you've lived Here's with roommates thing. when you were in school I've so I grew up in a family of seven so there was I've never had my own room and since that time I've always had a partner <laughs> I think I've I've slept alone in my bed you know or without a bunk bed for maybe one year of my 38 year life. So yeah. I guess I wouldn't mind so much, but I would, I know some friends who live in squats and it can become, you need some private space because if there's a personality, like you don't always get to choose who's there if you can't, you know, I don't know. It can be, it can be difficult. There's politics. There's a, there's a great Swedish movie. I think it's called Together. It's about, it, it, it wasn't filmed at the time, but it's about a commune in the 70s. And there's this guy, and his wife is there, and it's all free love, and he's kind of a a, a wimpy guy. And then this hunk comes in, and he's, he's a huge, handsome dude. And his wife comes up, saying, "Oh, is it okay? Can I have sex with this guy?" He's like, "Yeah, sure, I guess." And then they go in the other room, and the sex is amazing, and he's just listening. And he's, I don't know how cool it was living in a commune. Well, that's a whole other episode, maybe, where we talk about relationships and, uh, <laughs> like, all of the remixes on that and the complications. I Anyway, uh, I think we're almost out of time. Um, did yeah, you want to... Yeah. We didn't have any ads this week uh, that we were going to read, but you have a book out that we are going to, like, well, self-promote. The, the, just to get over our anxiety of self-promotion. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, the, I definitely want to do an episode about art and money because there's this weird... Uh, mantra that you should not uh, promote yourself or, or be proud of selling or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm doing a book event October 7 in Amsterdam at uh, Upstream Gallery. So we're launching the book. The book was already available online in Europe and it'll be available soon in uh, on Amazon. Um, but we're doing an event. I'm doing a live interview with one of the writers, Margriet Schavenmaker, and uh, there'll be drinks and friends so it'll be a social event but I hope you're not too anxious to come yeah where is that going to be? at Upstream Gallery in oh it's going to be at Upstream in Amsterdam oh cool so any of our uh, Dutch listeners go to Upstream Upstream's in a beautiful part of Amsterdam so you Uh, you walk along you visited right? yeah 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 and the actual gallery itself is gorgeous it's like yeah. a fantasy from some kind of dutch novel or something anyway <laughs> i definitely <laughs> recommend going to see that yeah. and um 
what do we have? We have a we have a field recording that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a little preview. What are we listening to today? Um, my friend Joel Fox, who lives in Ojai, California, uh, he went to Wyoming to see the eclipse. To see that what do you call it? Total. Oh yes, the um, t- total alignment or something. The path of totality. <laughs> that path of totality. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds like a, a Nazi strategy or something, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually just the moon covering the entire yeah. sun. But he mm. was there and he recorded the sounds of the people cheering for the, the actual peak moment. So uh, we'll listen to people cheering for the eclipse. I love this recording. You can hear these kids just going crazy. I love when kids are like just blown away. I feel <laughs> like kids on their cell phones are not blown away as often, but like you can legit hear one of the kids we've been talking about, uh, one of these, one of these like <laughs> depressed kids, like not at all depressed, just like so excited. That I don't know. That's the most hopeful sound in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. Enjoy. See you everybody next week. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.